Book Two, Chapter Four, Sections One through Three of Bread. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wild Shimmering Path. Bread by Charles G. Norris. Book Two, Chapter Four, Sections One through Three. On the 4th of July, the Gibbses asked Martin and Jeanette to spend the holiday and Sunday with them at Cohasset Beach. Jeanette contemplated the visit in the gayest of spirits. She spent fully two hours carefully packing her own and Martin's suitcases. She had some very smart clothes for such an outing, which she had had no opportunity of wearing since the happy honeymoon days at Atlantic City. The idea of appearing in these again at such a well-known summer resort at Cohasset Beach delighted her. She was anxious to be cordial to Mrs. Gibbs for Martin's sake, and meant to dispel any unpleasant impression of herself that either Mr. Gibbs or his wife might have been harboring. To exert herself particularly in her host's direction, draw him out of his shell, as Martin expressed it, and make him like her, was part of her resolution. Late Friday afternoon, she manfully struggled with the two suitcases to the 34th Street Ferry and met Martin as agreed at the entrance of the waiting room. They had been anxious to catch an early train from Long Island City, and it had been arranged that Mr. Gibbs and Mart should come to the station directly from the office and meet her at the ferry station. "'My God, Jan!' Martin exclaimed after he had swung himself off the trolley car and come running up to where she was waiting. "'My God, you look great! Say, I never saw you look so, so swell!' Mr. Gibbs was pleasantly cordial, though suffering much discomfort from the excessive heat. Sweat trickled down his expressionless face, and continually he removed his straw hat to mop his forehead with a drenched handkerchief. It was indeed hot, but the vistas up and down the river as the ferryboat blunted its way toward the Long Island shore were all of cool pinks, palest greens, and lavenders in the late summer afternoon, while the sun setting through a murky haze cast an enchanted light over the scene. In the train, Mr. Gibbs took himself off to the smoking car, leaving Martin and Jeanette alone. They sat beside a raised window, their hands linked under a fold of her silk dress, and the air that reached them was rich with the scent of the open country. The girl's heart was overflowing with happiness as Martin whispered endearments in her ear. She was a wonder, all right. She looked like a million dollars. Gosh, he was proud of her. There was no girl in the world like his wife. The holiday that was beginning for them, and the knowledge that they were not to be separated for two whole days, nearly three, filled both with great felicity. Cohasset Beach is a little village of two or three thousand inhabitants on the south side of the island, some twenty-five or thirty miles from New York. The Gibbs lived in an unpretentious, white, peaked-roofed house with plenty of shade trees about it and a rather patchy, ill-kept lawn, bordered with straggling rose beds. There was a lattice-sided porch covered with a clambering vine. The place was attractive, though shabby, the house sorely in need of paint, the front steps worn down to the natural color of the wood, the edges of the treads frayed and splintered, a sagging hammock hung under scrawny pepper trees, and a child's toys were scattered about while close to the latticed porch was a pile of play sand hauled up from the neighboring beach. Jeanette was disappointed. She had pictured the Gibbs's house more of an establishment. Cohasset Beach was a fashionable summer resort. The yacht club there was famous. She had thought to find her hosts living in some style, but she was not to be daunted. She had come prepared to have a good time and to make these people like her. She reminded herself of her determination not to spoil this visit for Martin. 
but on encountering Mrs. Gibbs, she realized afresh how little in common she had with her hostess. The woman was devoid of poise, restraint, or dignity. Jeanette had forgotten her volubility and harsh, unpleasant laugh. Mrs. Gibbs welcomed her guest eagerly, keeping up a running fire of remarks, loosing her squeaks of mirth in nervous fashion. She slipped her arm about Jeanette's waist and, before showing her to her room or giving her a chance to remove her hat, led her to the nursery to view little Herbie in his crib. Mr. Gibbs followed for a peep at his son before the child went off to sleep, and he brought Martin with him. They all hung over the sides of the crib and exclaimed about the baby, who rolled his solemn, perplexed eyes from face to face. Jeanette noted he was exactly like his father, flat-headed, expressionless, with no curve at the back of his neck, but Martin seemed quite taken with him, and when he tickled him with a finger, the baby opened wide his little red mouth, displaying his toothless red gums, and crowed vigorously. Jeanette was sure she detected in the sound the shrillness of his mother's senseless laugh. The guest room was on the third floor in one gable of the roof, a big room with sloping ceilings. It was equipped with a washstand on which stood a basin and ewer. The bathroom was on the floor below. Hattie, the colored cook, would bring up hot water, Mrs. Gibbs said in her excited way as she left them, urging her guests to make themselves comfortable. Jeanette had carefully packed Martin's dinner clothes and her own prettiest dinner frock, but there would evidently be no formal dressing in such a household. She stood at an open latticed window that jutted out above the vine-covered porch and looked out over a rippling billow of treetops, softly green now in the fading evening light, that tumbled down to the water's edge. The sound was dotted with little boats riding at anchor, and there was one private yacht, gay with lights and fluttering pennants. The lambent heavens in the west touched the shimmering water delicately with pink. She pressed her lips resolutely together and stared out upon the scene, unmoved by its beauty. Great, isn't it? Martin said, coming to stand beside her and putting his arm about her. We'll have a home like this of our own some day, eh, old girl? And you'll be the boss of the show and be cooking me some of your fine dinners when I come home, and I'll take you out sailing in the yacht on Sundays. He laughed his rich, buoyant peal and caught her in his arms. Oh, Martin, she breathed tremulously, sinking her face against his shoulder. I love you so. I love you so. As she had foreseen, there was no change of costume for dinner at the Gibbses' table. The meal itself had as little distinctiveness as the host and hostess, soup and vegetables, a large steak followed by apple pie and the usual accessories. Martin, Mr. Gibbs, and his wife drank beer. It appeared that it was imported, and Martin was eloquent in its praise. There were cookies, too, which made a special appeal to him. Coochin, Mrs. Gibbs called them, but Jeanette thought them hard and tasteless. After dinner, the men walked down to the water and back, smoking their cigars, while Jeanette sat and listened to a long tale by Mrs. Gibbs of how she had happened to meet her Herbert, how her parents had objected, how they had tried to separate them, and how love had finally triumphed. But Jeanette went to sleep that night with a happy prospect for the morrow awaiting her. They were to have lunch at the fashionable yacht club. Disappointment lay in store for her again. At noon the next day, perplexed by the picnic baskets and shoeboxes of lunch with which they were laden as they left the house, she learned it was the family yacht club and not the imposing Cohasset Beach Yacht Club for which they were headed. Oh, no, Mr. Gibbs explained. Only the swell New Yorkers and the rich nabobs who lived down on the point patronized the Cohasset Beach Yacht Club. The dues there were $50 a month. The nice folk in Cohasset all belonged to the family yacht club. She would see herself how pleasant it was there. 
the stewards served hot coffee, and everybody brought their own lunches. Jeanette looked straight ahead of her to hide the blur of disappointed tears that for a moment blinded her. Martin was behind with Mrs. Gibbs, carrying Herbie in his arms. The resolve to try and be pleasant and make these people like her died hopelessly in the girl's heart. Oh, it was no use. It had been dreadful from the moment they arrived. It would remain dreadful to the end. The clubhouse of the family yacht club was a low-spreading, wind-blown, sand-battered, gray building that squatted along the shore, separated from the lisping wavelets of the sound by a strip of white, sandy beach. A long pier ran out into the water, and a number of small sailboats and rowboats were tied to the float at its further end. The pier, the beach, the wide veranda of the clubhouse were all crowded today. Flags flew or were draped everywhere, and bathers ran up and down along the wet sand, or congregated on the raft anchored a hundred yards from shore. Whew! exclaimed Martin when he viewed the scene. Isn't this great? His wife threw him a look. It did not seem possible he was serious, but a glimpse of his delighted face showed her he was indeed. There were no chairs nor benches on which to sit but the newcomers found a clean space on the sandy shore and prepared to establish themselves there. Jeanette thought of her spotless new white fibrous silk skirt and in sad resignation sank into place. About them were a dozen or so of similar groups, preparing for the midday meal or already enjoying it. They were all neighbors of the Gibbses, residents of Cohasset Beach who knew one another intimately, and hailed each new arrival, bandying Christian names. A man some distance away shouted in the direction of Gibbs's party, brandishing a bottle of beer. Hey, Gibbsy! he yelled. Hey there! How's the old stick in the mud? Mrs. Gibbs shrieked across the stretch of sand at the woman beside him. How's the baby? Fine, came the answer. Mama's got him. That's Zeb Klein over there, Mrs. Gibbs informed her husband. It's the first time he's been out since he was sick. And those folks with Doc French certainly look like his sister-in-law and that cousin of hers, Mrs. Prentice. A burst of music and the report of a cannon came distinctly from farther down the shore. Jeanette, craning her neck, could see a large, glistening white building with a red roof, gaily decorated with flags. There were loops of bunting about the railings of its porches. That's the Cohasset Beach Yacht Club, said Mr. Gibbs. The Commodore's just come to anchor. That's his yacht out there. There'll be some fine racing this aft. The stars are going out. Ham or cheese? Mrs. Gibbs inquired, proffering sandwiches. She was busy with the lunch, snapping strings, opening boxes, squeezing wrapped tissue paper packages with her fingers, shaking them, hazarding guesses as to their contents. I wonder what Hattie's got in here, she kept saying. Do have some sauerkraut. I made it myself. I thought maybe you'd like it. Don't you fancy mustard dressing? Well, try the stuffed eggs. Hope you think they're good. The cake's Hattie's. I think her chocolate's splendid. Mr. Devlin, some mustard pickles? Some eggs? Goodness gracious, Papa! Look out for Herbie. He'll get himself all sopping. Say, Mr. Gibbs, this beer is great. How do you manage to have it so cold? Martin asked. I bring it down a day or two ahead of time, and the steward puts it on the ice for me. Just half a dozen bottles, you know, doesn't put him to too much trouble. Well, this is a great little club, all right. We think it's nice. Just a few of us that have children got together and organized it. The Cohasset Beach has a big bar, and there always is a good deal of drinking going on down there. The New Yorkers, you know, come down for a good time. 
No place for young folk. No, you bet your life. Jeanette, in spite of herself, found she was hungry. The fried chicken in the oiled tissue paper was delicious, and she loved the liverwurst sandwiches. Mrs. Sturgis and her girls had always been extremely fond of liverwurst. Kratzmer kept it, and many a luncheon Jeanette, her mother, and sister had made with little else. The hot cup of coffee that Mrs. Gibbs poured from the tin pot the club steward brought and set down in the sand put life into her. The pleasant heat of the day, the sunshine, the life and frolicking in sand and water forced enjoyment upon her. But she would not go in swimming when Martin urged her. One glance at the crude bathhouse with its gray boards and canvas roof was sufficient to decide her on this point. She sat stiffly beside Mrs. Gibbs, who had rocked Herbie to sleep in her arms and now moved so her shadow would keep the sun off the child's face, while she watched Mr. Gibbs and her husband disport themselves in the water. Martin's swimming always attracted attention, and when he made a beautiful swan dive from the end of the pier there was a ripple of applause. She felt proud of him, proud of his fine figure, the beauty of his young body, his prowess, his unaffectedness. Who's that young fellow doing all the fancy diving out there? A man sauntering up asked Mrs. Gibbs. breathed that lady, indicating her sleeping child. His name's Martin Devlin, she whispered. He works for Herbert in the city. Works for Herbert in the city? Jeanette felt the blood rush to her face. Works for Herbert, indeed. Well, he wouldn't be working for Herbert much longer. She'd have something to say about that. The idea, the impertinence, giving the impression that her wonderful Martin was merely an employee of Herbert Gibbs. Her husband, wet and dripping, came up to her and flung himself down, panting upon the sand. Gee, he said boyishly, that water's great. Never had a better swim in my life. It's a shame you didn't go in, Jan. He looked at her, sensing something was amiss, but she smiled at him and pressed his wet, sandy hand. Late in the afternoon, they prepared to go home. As they were about to leave the club, a man climbing into his automobile offered a lift. Martin and Jeanette begged to be allowed to walk and persuaded their hosts on account of the baby to take advantage of the car. Left to themselves, they commenced a leisurely return. Along the tree-bordered roads that fringed the shore, other groups in white skirts and flannels were wending their way homeward. Flags flew from poles or were draped over doorways. The strain of a waltz drifted seductively from the Cohasset Beach Yacht Club. The blue water of the sound was dotted with glistening triangles of sails, heeled over and headed in one direction. Those are the stars, Martin exclaimed. The race is finishing. Number seven seems to have it clinched. That steam yacht over there with all the flags is the judge's boat. They watched for a moment longer. Far out in midstream, one of the sound streamers was passing. Already lights were beginning to twinkle in her cabins. Wonderful day, commented Martin, giving his wife's hand as it rested in the crook of his elbow, a squeeze with his arm. They wandered onward. I'd love to have a home with you in a place like this, with the sailing and swimming and tennis and all this outdoor fun. It's my idea of living. A fellow Mr. Gibbs introduced me to out on the raft belongs to the Cohasset Beach Club, too. He told me they've got some swell tennis courts over there, and he was after me to play with him tomorrow. And will you? Jeanette asked listlessly. Well, I guess I can't. Mr. Gibbs said something about some friends of theirs asking us all to go sailing tomorrow. That will be nice, said his wife, still in a lifeless tone, but Martin did not notice. 
By George, I think this is a great place. I was asking Mr. Gibbs about rents, and he tells me we could get a fine little eight-room house for forty a month, and it's only three-quarters of an hour from town. And what would you do without your theatres and your shows and your little dinners downtown? Smiled Jeanette. Oh, they could go hang. The smile upon his wife's face twisted skeptically. She knew Martin better than he knew himself. And don't you think the Gibbses are awful nice folks? They don't put on any airs, but are friendly and simple. They'd take us under their wing, and it'd be darn nice neighbors. Jeanette shut her mouth. It was not the time to shatter his enthusiasm. He was having a good time. Imagined these people wonderful. It wouldn't be kind of her to show him now how vulgar and cheap and horrid they and their friends and their little ridiculous club were. No, it would only hurt him, and under the influence of the day and the good time it would lead to a quarrel. And she was sick of quarrels. She reminded herself she was out of sorts from the long day of boredom and disappointment. It would be madness to say a word now. The time when she could make him see the Gibbses, their house, their friends, their tiresome pleasures and cheap environment as she saw them, would come. And she must bide her time. Not so particularly interesting, Martin was saying, but a darned good sort, and he's got a shrewd business head. I think he likes me first rate, and I was mighty glad to see you and Mrs. Gibbs pulling together. She told me she thought you were great, said all manner of nice things about how swell you looked. She's not much of a looker herself, but she certainly has got the right feeling of hospitality. Know what I mean, Jan? She gives you the best she's got and makes you feel at home, and that she's glad you're in her house. I think that's bully. And isn't that kid a corker? Golly, I think he's slick. You know, I carried him all the way down from the house to the club, and he had his arms around my neck the whole way. He made funny little sounds in my ear, you know, as though he was kind of enjoying himself. Gee, he's a great baby. That flat-headed, vacant-faced child? Well, Martin was hopeless. He must be crazy. There was no use talking to him. In the morning, Jeanette vigorously renewed her resolution not to mar her husband's pleasure. For the first time since her marriage, she felt oddly estranged from him. There was a rent somewhere in the veil through which he had hitherto appeared so handsome, so considerate, so wonderfully perfect, and the glimpse she had of him now through the rift was disconcerting and a little shocking. While they were dressing, he smoked a cigarette, although he well knew the fumes of it before breakfast made her giddy. At the table, he was unnecessarily noisy, laughed too loudly with his mouth wide open and full of muffin, and after breakfast on the ill-kept lawn, he rolled about with the Gibbs baby, making a buffoon of himself and streaking his white trousers with grass green and dirt. They were to go sailing at ten o'clock. The Websters were to call for them, and it was thoughtless of Martin and indicated all too clearly his utter indifference to her feelings. He looked a sight in his dirtied flannels, but she would be sweet, she would be amiable, she would not undo whatever good had been accomplished. At four o'clock they would take the train back to the city. There remained less than seven hours more of this dreadful visit. Martin had completely captivated Mrs. Gibbs, his enthusiasm for the baby had been the last compelling touch. She shrieked at everything he said, thought him perfectly killing. Both she and Mr. Gibbs had been cordial to Jeanette. Grimly, the girl determined she would hold herself in leash for the few short hours that remained, would smile and smirk and simper and do whatever they wanted. But it was the 1040 train that night which she and Martin were able to catch back to town. 
the Webster's yacht had been becalmed, and all day the boat had rocked upon the slow, oily swells of the sound, the sail flapping dismally, the ropes creaking and straining in the blocks. The women had huddled together in the scant shade of the sail, while the men sprawled helplessly in the flagellating sun. Herbie had wailed and whimpered for hours before his mother had been able to quiet him off to sleep. She had kept repeating in a sort of justification for his ill temper. Why, he wants his bottle. The poor darling wants his bottle. Course he's cross. He wants his bottle. At four in the afternoon, a motorboat had come within hailing distance and generously offered a tow. Fifteen minutes later, they were underway in its wake when something suddenly went wrong with the motorboat's engine, and both vessels slowly heaved from side to side on the oily swells. Mrs. Webster frankly became seasick. The men shouted to one another across the strip of water between the boats, but none of the suggestions of either party brought result. The motorboat being equipped with oars, it was decided to row for assistance, a matter of two miles, steady pull. Martin had wanted to go along and lend a hand, but Jeanette tugged at his arm and sternly forbade him to leave her. Effective aid finally appeared towards eight o'clock in the evening when the gathering darkness had begun to make their position really perilous and an hour later the party clambered out in the float in front of the family yacht club, cramped, hungry, but profoundly thankful. By the time Martin and Jeanette had reached the Gibbs's house and made ready for their return to town, the 1040 had been the earliest train they could catch back to the city. Their hosts begged them to remain for the night, but Jeanette was inflexible in insisting upon returning home. She feared another hour spent at Cohasset Beach would drive her stark, raving mad. End of Book 2, Chapter 4, Sections 1 through 3